Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And so the picture in Revelation we have pictured here, illustrated here in the church, and it is Jesus knocking on the heart's door. He doesn't pound on the door. He doesn't force the door open. But what we see in this image is the encounter between the divine and human personhood. Even in humankind's imagined aloneness, God provides for the integrity of human personhood. He doesn't overwhelm or violate or overpower. But as Christ says, I stand at the door. I knock. If any man hear my voice, the voice is not overpowering. It's not a forced invitation. But if one hears the knock, responds to the voice, and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. And so God convinces, as Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. He convinces by divine love, which presumes the freedom of the person. The freedom of the person remains inviolable and impenetrable, even for God. As Philippian describes, God comes to us in a kenotic, self-emptying mode. He voluntarily suspends his omnipotence before the person. God comes to us in Christ presuming that the image in which we are created is already correlated, already desirous, already made for divinity. The image of God in humans fulfilled, maybe this can be best captured in the movement between Romans 7 with its depiction of the image as unfulfilled Trinitarian potential and Romans 8 with its depiction of participation in the fullness of divine reality. The former, or the created image, it's meant for the latter. The uncreated image, or direct participation in Trinitarian reality, is what the created image is for. The created image, apart from the fulfillment of its potential, It still contains the infinite, but in a way it's a bad infinite, in which nothingness takes the place of divine reality. That is, the dynamic of nothingness. This is really the choice posed to us in the idea of creation ex nihilo. It's either God or nothing. And this is a kind of, this nothing, this, you know, refusal of God, it's kind of an anti-reality that can serve in place of the positive reality of God. 
But even so, it's not that anyone can truly be alone or remain solitary. There is no complete separation from God. That is, God's knocking. We're made for communion with God. Deism or atheism notwithstanding. And so the displacement of the divine image can never lead to a complete break or a complete fading of the image. We always bear in some fashion the imprint of the image. We always bear the stamp of eternity. And this creaturely eternity, of course, in and of itself, maybe it's not open to explanation apart from recognizing that for which it was made. Which is to say the bad infinity of Romans 7 or the isolated psychoanalytic subject is kind of an impenetrable mystery. That is, if explanation is sought within this subject themselves. Just the notion of the limitlessness of eternal life contained in the created image. This creates a series of paradoxes or antinomies. If explanation for this limitlessness is sought within finite possibilities. That is, we are made for eternity. And that's the only thing that explains who and what we are. The impossibility of the infinite in the finite, or the negative mystery which this creates, it can be kind, it becomes a kind of lure in psychoanalysis, the lure of the obstacle cause of desire. For example, sexual difference or loading infinite weight on male-female difference creates an obstacle to fulfillment. So creation contains infinite possibilities of ascending or descending motion, of deceleration or acceleration, in which apart from grace or providential interaction, there is always this incompleteness. There is always a kind of dissatisfaction. The created thirsts for fulfillment in the uncreated, in the divine, for which it was made. The human image is a receptacle for union with God. But plugging other things into this receptacle creates a short circuit or a bad infinity in which absence and nothingness may be invested with infinite weight. And so we may be more familiar with the short circuit. That is, we may read something like Romans 7 and picture that as the norm. But this creaturely infinity, it only finds fulfillment in being joined to God, in opening the door. This being joined to God, or what we call salvation, is not simply, though, a byproduct of the fall of man. This is Sergei Bulgakov. He says, it's generally thought that salvation is something extraordinary that comes from outside, that it transcends man's natural vocation, his creaturely image. But this salvation or deification is predetermined by the very creation of man in the image of God. We were made for the communion pictured here. We were made to open the door. Being created in the image of God 
means humankind was made to be joined to the divine. In the manner maybe in which Christ brings together divine and human in his person. Well, he does that for all of us. It's not that the individual becomes something other than themselves, but we become fully ourselves. Christ's divine humanity is the pattern for all of humanity. The incarnation of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the world, these aren't counter to the individual or their image, but it is the correlate of what it means to be created in the image of God. And so the possibility is contained in the image. And the fall of man is not the explanation for the need for grace. But the image itself calls for the fulfillment of the work that is there in Christ. As Bulgakov puts it, the fall of man here signifies only deviation from the straight path of his ascent, which leads him to deification or he uses the word Sophianization, by virtue of the image of God in him. Man's state before the fall does not in any way correspond to the postulates of deism, you know, in which there's a total separation of man's life from God. That was never true of humanity. The joining of the divine and the human was not complete with creation and that's the story in Genesis the scene there in Genesis the image was already dependent upon God's presence that's the significance of the tree of life Genesis indicates the necessity of a synergistic relationship as God's breath is breathed into the first man you know the picture there actually in the Hebrew it just repeats the same word over and over the tree of life is actually, we could call it the tree of breath. God's breath breathed into the first man, the tree of breath or the tree of life. It pictures this synergism as not only present in the original image, God is repeating his breath in the human creature, but is also dependent on the necessity of its fulfillment outside of itself through access to God, the tree of life, which is representative there. The repetition of God in the human image calls for continued life, continued repetition, continued communion with God. Prior to setting forth this notion, this is actually a very Eastern understanding. Sergei Bolgakov writes a long work on this, but then he takes account of what he calls Western theology in regard to the most basic questions, you know, about the self, ontology. And he pictures what has happened in the West, and I think he's, he's largely right, as a departure from the thing that I've just described to you. Genesis pictures the freedom to refuse the fulfillment of this relationship. We can stop, we can refuse to open the door. But theology subsequent to Augustine focused as it is on God's sovereignty. It really doesn't allow for either this freedom or for any significant survival of the divine image or freedom of choice. That is, the significance of the human image is lost. 
And it's really unaccounted for in our picture of theology. And then the conceptualization of salvation, which cuts itself off from understanding, oh, well, the salvation is just opening a door. We've lost that simple image, that original image, in which there is a completion of creation through salvation. And as a result, sin and salvation are made mysterious in Augustine. He just says this. And what replaces the biblical picture of personhood, really the personhood of humans and the personhood of God, is something like a mechanical force. And there's this doctrine of you know, first causes, second causes, which acts upon the world more like a machine or, or a, a, a force than a person. There's this monstrous misunderstanding. And I think this is kind of the theological temptation, which replaces the revelation of the living and personal God with the doctrine of an impersonal mechanism. There is a person standing at the door. God is a person. And what we have here is the picture of the meeting of two persons. The Augustinian doctrine of original sin and predestination it does not leave room for human freedom. But in reality, it, it doesn't leave room for sin and salvation with, you know, in conjunction with the human image. And this is really inherited you know, by Thomas Aquinas. He pictures God as the first cause, and it ends in a deterministic understanding in which we lose human freedom. We lose the sense in which the divine image is completed in salvation and really it's just rendered moot or inconsequential and maybe there's a semantic preservation you know in Augustinianism or in Thomism or even I, I don't know if Calvinists would even pretend for allowing freedom but there is no real ontological place in the system for any real freedom Bulgakov gives the illustration. He says it's as if a mountain settles with all of its weight upon a thin nail that enters into a soft tree. It is meaningless to speak of the possibility of resistance or of choice for this nail. The choice of entering into the tree or resisting. But the relation between the omnipotence of God and creaturely freedom is incommensurable even with the hugeness of the mountain. He talks about Mount Blanc. He was in France. In relation to the nail, creaturely freedom is simply annihilated. And so the turn to Aristotelianism in Thomism, it leaves theology with the problems of Greek philosophy. And of course, we're all the inheritors of this problem. And there's really no place for the distinction between, you know, the first cause, the second cause, between God and the world. God is just introduced as a causal force or, you know, he's completely separate or absorbed by the world. And there is no explanation of how God and world can be in relationship without destroying or absorbing either God or the world. Really in Roman Catholicism and much of Protestantism, there is a loss of the possibility 
of the divine image in man being completed due to determinism. And so what we have, Augustinian predestination, it raises the specter of what is called double predestination. You know, some would be sent to heaven, and with that, the correlate, well, God determines some are sent to hell. Augustine, he, he refuses to address the question. He says, well, it's just the will of God. It's unfathomable. We, do, we just can't understand it. And the inevitable conclusion that follows and was drawn later is that Christ brought redemption for only a few, for only the elect. He didn't come to save everybody. Augustine makes no attempt to explain apart from God's will. It's unfathomable. And Thomas, following Augustine, offers the explanation, which is a kind of non-explanation, that the saving of some is brought out and appreciated most fully against the background of the majority being condemned. That is, those in heaven will especially appreciate their place when they look down upon those in hell and realize what a good deal they got. God, and I'm quoting here, God wished to show his goodness to people in relation to those whom he predestined sparing them according to grace and punishing them according to justice. Now both Augustine and Thomas will attempt to ward off the doctrine of, of double predestination. But John Calvin fully embraces it, along with a very perverse understanding of God. He has the courage of consistency. He takes all of the horrifying conclusions of Augustinian predestination to their extreme. And he really refuses the attempted subtleties of Thomas and Augustine. I think what must be the most abhorrent doctrine in the world that God chooses some to be damned and he chooses just a few to be saved that must be the most perverse doctrine ever formulated. Calvin proclaims double predestination to glory and perdition as God's inexorable will. It's clear that such an absolute predestination, of course, it completely eliminates human freedom. And election or reprobation, they're just an inevitable fate. Either the door remains closed because that's all you can do, or the door is swung open because that's all you can do because God's doing everything. And to deny this conclusion, Calvin says, well, this is just childishness. This is just the way it is. And then he quickly says, you know, that God wills evil. I'm quoting from the Institutes, Calvin's Institutes. He established with the decree of his will the fall of the first man. He made Adam fall. Adam fell because of a divine predestination. God not only foresaw the fall of the first man and in him all of his descendants, he willed it. And the conclusion drawn from assuming God as cause rather than as, as creator, it sets both salvation and creation in a kind of 
causal mode, a really monstrous understanding in which the living personal God and living personal humans are replaced by determinism and causalism and mechanism. And the idea of creation, of the creator in creation, is replaced by a mechanism, a a, a well-adjusted mechanism, in which maybe you could sneak in something like freedom, but it's really not possible. And really in this doctrine, neither man, the image of God, nor God, nor God's image as creator, they're really done away with. Despite, you know, maybe the best of intentions, freedom is lost. You can't open the door unless God wills it. And if he wills it, you can't keep it shut. Freedom is lost. God is really lost as a person. Human personhood is lost. All replaced by a kind of sovereign machine. All of this, this kind of negative picture, then calls for a more positive development. And the turn from God as cause to God as creator that we talked a little bit about last week, I think is the means of rightly understanding personhood and the possibility of God entering into creation. It's a much different thing to describe God as creator than God as a force or first cause. In the creation of the world, God in becoming the creator He repeats or doubles his own being, the way that Bogokov pictures this, in divine wisdom that we talked about last week in Proverbs. And maybe the illustration is there in Genesis about what we might mean. You know, the divine breath is repeated in the first man. He breathes and then the man breathes. And this repetition of the breath, which is the life, the spirit of God, that's what we're really talking about, gives man his own life, his own spirit, which is indistinguishable in many respects from the life of God. The man has personhood, right? He has free choice. He has a capacity for relationship. He has a capacity to name the various animals. He has a capacity to order. He has a capacity to exercise his will on the world. Here is the fullness of human personhood. And of course, with the fall, there is a delimitation set upon this personhood. But the original image in its direct association with God remains. That's the story. Just as with the breath, repeated in Genesis, in God, in the man, in the tree, so too the creaturely image is the self-repetition, as it were, of the divine image, outside of divine being. You know, here is life created out of nothing, out of which God created the world. And so, really, the beginning, you know, having this kind of eternity in our hearts, the beginning of creaturely being, we can't really trace a first cause and cannot even have one. You know, is it our birth? Is it our parentage? Is it our physical origins? They really don't explain personhood. 
The origin of persons is the eternal image shared by all of humanity. And this eternality is reflected in the repetition of the divine image and the multiplicity of people in people's potential as human persons. And even the recognition, you know, of finitude. Oh, we're going to die of mortality. That points to a kind of eternal reflexive capacity. An infinite capacity for reason and for choice. And thus the confrontation with Christ. It doesn't describe a passive relinquishment of will, of personhood, of reason, but their active engagement by their very nature, precisely by virtue of creaturely freedom, creatures cannot receive their being in a passive manner. You've got to open the door. We absorb the grace in a kind of ongoing actualization in which we are co-participants. We must imitate Christ. We must exercise our will. We must walk as he walked. We must exercise active choice in opening the door, in following and reflecting to a greater degree his likeness, forever completing his image. That is, I think what this picture is describing is the encounter of two persons, not the encounter of an, a disabled, an original sin, that there's a, a complete loss of freedom, but creaturely freedom modal yet authentic, within its limits, it encounters divine suggestions, synergistically. You know, the idea is God's spirit, God's breath, with our spirit, with our breath. Man wrestles with God, like Jacob, in his freedom. But he also asks for and receives God's blessing, like Jacob. And so in the passage from Romans 7 to Romans 8, it's not just that human will or personhood are relinquished or absent in either case, but in Romans 7, the misdirected will is split, frustrated, caught up in death. You know, this is really a description of the fall. The infinite is turned in upon itself. There is a threefold absence of Trinitarian proportions in the I. The law serves in place of the Father, meaning the divine human relation is disrupted. The ego, or the I, serves in place of being in Christ, such that the reflexive image only reverberates in the interior dimension. Romans 7, like Genesis 3, is one that takes place within the inner dimension of the person. This refracts into the body of death, such that the I is an antinomy split from within. I do what I do not want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. And chapter 7 is filled with the peculiar suffering of this psychoanalytic subject. The person is driven in 7-7 by jealousy, 7.9 describes it as a living death. 7.11 as deception. 7.14 as bondage, slavery. 7.18 as frustrated willing. There's a lot of suffering there. 
of a very peculiar kind. And it's summed up in Paul's cry of agony in 724. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? This is not someone devoid of eternity in their hearts, but someone haunted by eternity and yet unable to grasp it. The answer to this eternal agonizing suffering is found in Christ in chapter 8. In Romans 8, the person is redirected. 8.6 For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The incapacity exposed in 7, you know, 7.15, not doing what I want, is displaced by an ability in 8.4 by walking according to the spirit. And the relation with the law is replaced with a relationship with God directly. You have received a spirit of adoption, 8.15, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The synergistic relation is restored as one dwells in Christ and the spirit melds with the human spirit. This is 8.16 to 17. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. In the language of Bulgakov, created Sophia, that is the created image, is filled with divine Sophia, the person of God, in and through the love of God fulfilling the human image. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him, and he with me. The created image is melded with the divine image, and here is predestination. Here is holistic choosing of free persons. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.